Good morning, everyone. Welcome to CSIS. I'm Johanna Nesseth, and um, I'm Senior Vice President for Strategic Planning here and head up our work on global food security. Glad to have with us this morning David Gressley. David is the Regional Humanitarian Coordinator for the Sahel uh, with the UN, and he's come today to give an update on what's happening in the Sahel to talk through some of the specific areas of crisis, both short-term and then some of the long-term structural challenges and some of the efforts to address those. Uh, what we will do today, I, I've, okay, I've lost my watch, my battery's dead, so I'll try to stay on time. But what we'd like to do is uh, give David a chance to talk through some of the issues and then uh, after a bit open up to questions and answers for the remainder of the period. So welcome, David. Thank you very much. Thanks for being here. Um, and what I'd like to just ask you to start out by talking a little bit about what you're seeing uh, and what you see playing out over the next uh, month or two. Okay, well, thank you very much. It's a real pleasure to be here today and, um, and, and good to see everyone. Uh, what I would like to do maybe is just uh, describe from a humanitarian point of view the situation across the Sahel. And, and to start, let me just describe which countries I'm referring to when I talk about that. Uh, and from a humanitarian response point of view, we're, uh, we're talking about the countries of uh, Mauritania, uh, Senegal, Gambia, Mali, Burkina Faso, uh, Niger, uh, Chad, and then the northern Sahelian states of Nigeria and the northern Sahel region of Cameroon for a total of nine countries. Uh, essentially, the way I look at it, there's three concurrent crises going across the Sahel at, the, at this time. The first is the acute uh, food and nutrition crisis as a result of last year's drought uh, and, and resulting drop in food production. Uh, the second would be what I would consider the, the long-term chronic structural problem of the, in the same nature uh, that will be with us every year. The first crisis is affecting 18 million households uh, this year uh, with food insecurity, and we, we projected that over a million children would suffer from severe acute malnutrition. Uh, which has a very high mortality rate if, if left untreated. Uh, on the second, even with a good harvest, uh, and there are actually prospects of a good harvest for 2012, for 2013 consumption, uh, even in a good year and a good harvest, a quarter of a million children will still die of malnutrition across these same nine countries. Uh, so the chronic nature of the emergency also has to be dealt with. And then the third, of course, is the crisis uh, in Mali itself, the crisis in the north of Mali, which has led to a large amount of displacement. In terms of the current situation on, on each of the three, uh, in, in uh, the food nutrition crisis, I think uh, two or three good things have happened. Number one, many of the governments, starting with the government of Niger, started out very early to warn about the, the food shortfall, production shortfall, uh, and called for action. Uh, they, they did not try to hide uh, the, the problem. They actually were very proactive in getting out and, and, and asking for assistance and reorganizing their own support for that. Secondly, I think a very, a very good donor response coming from the, the U.S., the EU, uh, OCHA itself put in quite a bit of resources to kickstart a response. And, and I think as a result, we're seeing that the situation uh, the, the worst certainly has been avoided across the Sahel. I'm not saying there wasn't, uh, there weren't problems, there were, but the worst of, uh, of what could have happened, I think, has been avoided. And in many ways, we're, we're seeing, I think, a success across the Sahel in avoiding uh, a, a very serious problem uh, of food insecurity and malnutrition. Um, 
there are th still threats uh, uh, as we look forward and in looking forward to 2013. Our, our focus will be on rebuilding after this crisis, uh, livelihoods in particular in the agriculture and livestock areas, uh, and then focusing on the chronic uh, problem that will remain uh, once again, repeating the quarter of a million children who will still die next year. We think there will be a good harvest. Uh, so far, the signs are promising. Uh, the rains are good. I've traveled extensively, and it is very green across there. And more importantly, the, uh, the indications are that the harvest good. Prices are stabilizing, all of which are good signs. Um, there is a still a, a persistent th uh, threat of, of locusts uh, coming out of the north of Mali and Niger. But that too, uh, that may that may pass without major problem. Uh, the latest report I saw on that indicated that that threat may be more oriented to uh, to Algeria, northwestern Mauritania, than than the the, the salient countries that I just referred to. So, with that good news, I think uh, you know that's that's useful to 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 know that early action uh, can have a very positive impact. However, the, that early action cost 1.6, our, our estimate of requirements was $1.6 billion for the response. We've uh, mobilized about a billion dollars of that so far, um, and uh, uh, we expect additional resources to come in before the end of the year. Of that, $300 million was for refugee response, so about $1.3 was for the food and nutrition crisis. The food and nutrition crisis, reasonably well-funded on the food and nutrition side, less well-funded on the health, uh, w uh, water, uh, education sides, uh, uh, which is uh, unfortunate, uh, but, but nonetheless, overall, not too bad. The refugee side has been very uh, poorly funded, and I'll talk about that when I get into the Mali crisis. Um, so looking forward to 2013, with this good news, the danger is, is that we will forget the chronic crisis, and it's important that that, that not be forgotten. Uh, there will continue to be significant issues next year of food insecurity uh, and malnutrition across the Sahel. Uh, and, and secondly, we know a drought will hit again in the future. We don't know which year, but it will happen. So we have a choice of either allowing the chronic problems to continue and, and responding massively with a $1.6 billion response in 2016 or 17 or whenever the next drought may hit, or start taking action today to try to, to reduce the impact uh, over time, reduce both in terms of human suffering as well as, as the cost of that kind of response. So uh, I think actually there's a very strong uh, political uh, a will among countries, uh, regional institutions, major donors to start looking at how to do that. Uh, one of the key uh, issues, uh, initiatives I should say in this is the Azir Sahel Initiative, which is being spearheaded by the European Union. Um, it's still in very early days, but it offers an opportunity, I believe, which if taken, to, to put uh, significant resources uh, on the table to start looking at the development aspects of how to reinforce these very vulnerable households so that they can adapt to, to future shocks and reduce the year-to-year the, the -year chronic nature of, of uh, vulnerability. Um, uh, certainly the EU and I believe the World Bank are willing uh, to put significant resources uh, on the table for this. The U.S. government, perhaps not quite the same level, but still uh, with a strong focus on, on, on uh, resilience, as it's described uh, in the region, uh, is there. The U.N. system is fully on board. We've just completed 
an exercise looking at how we would um, intervene in uh, in resilience uh, in in the nine countries, and the focus is on areas such as agricultural production, uh, nutrition, prevention of malnutrition, social safety nets, uh, livelihoods, uh, irrigation, water-related uh, uh, management issues. That kind of package is being put together. Uh, currently, Niger and Chad are, are well advanced on that, and we're going to work with our other countries to bring them up to speed in the same in the same fashion. Uh, so what we want to do, and I think other organizations likewise, is to bring closer the humanitarian and development uh, response on the humanitarian side, continue providing support to those vulnerable households as the development agencies are coming on board to support those same households in the areas that I described. And over time, uh, I think we could reasonably expect that that level of vulnerability would uh, would be reduced and the need to, to, to mount a massive response um, also reduced. Uh, what I think is critical is 2013, is to see whether or not the kind of partnership that Azir Sahel represents materializes in, in a meaningful way and in an operational way on, on the ground. Uh, I think the opportunity is there, as I said, but it needs to be seized, and we need to see it uh, in 2013. Uh, moving on quickly to Mali, uh, that introduces a different dynamic, and I think it's important before I st speak about it that we, we look at uh, the chronic problem I described uh, as a separate kind of issue that needs specific and broad support over a period of time. The Mali kind of political security crisis uh, simply layered on top of that and making it more complicated uh, to, to respond to, but it is a different kind of issue. And the danger is, is that we get in, in fully involved and absorbed by the political and security nature of the crisis, the access issues and so forth, and forget the longer-term chronic problem. Uh, we have to be able to focus on both at the same time. In Mali, um, the, uh, the fall of the three major regions uh, from government control uh, in the north has led to a significant displacement uh, 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 of uh, over 100,000 IDPs. Um, uh, the number of refugees has been estimated up to 250,000, though UNHCR is doing a registration exercise, which will probably show lower levels in the, in the camps than, than that. But nonetheless, significant movement out of uh, the north of Mali. Uh, and more importantly, the, the kinds of activities that are going on, the kind of groups that are uh, settling in there, both associated with terrorist activities and I think often underestimated the, the strong links to organized crime, drug trafficking, hostage taking, um, are, are, are having a long-term, um, potentially a long-term impact, not only in north of Mali, but Mali as a whole and, and the surrounding sub-region. Uh, we're quite concerned, uh, not only that this is a situation that will likely persist um, over a period of time, but could get significantly worse before it starts to get better. Uh, we're therefore preparing contingency plans for for a variety of scenarios, including that of a military intervention into the north of Mali, but also just a, a more general generalized conflict that could emerge um, either between the north and the south or, or between elements in the north. Um, the, if talking to refugees, they're quite clear uh, why they have left. Uh, generally, they left either at the early stages when the initial confrontations took place uh, those that have left later uh, talk of uh, a fear of a military intervention as a reason to want to leave, um, and they want to get out of the way before something happens. Uh, that 
tells us, I believe, that if there is a more solid move to military intervention, we would probably see even greater displacement out of the north of Mali, either into the south or into surrounding countries. Um, so I think it's important. Uh, uh, we, we really don't want to have a long-term humanitarian intervention, therefore would like to see uh, a, a good political solution to the issues of, of conflict in the north of Mali. Um, uh, one that um, certainly brings all the communities of the North on board into uh, a viable long-term political solution. It's also the exact thing that the refugees ask for. I've talked to refugees in, in uh, everywhere from uh, Niger, Burkina, Mauritania, and, and Algeria, and, and they tell me the same thing. They really have no intent to returning back until they see a credible peace. Uh, they believe that the last agreement... Uh, uh, in the conflict that took place in the 90s proved not to have been implemented correctly, uh, and they're very skeptical about uh, what might emerge in the short term in the north of Mali. So their belief is that they will stay for some time outside of Mali, uh, and they want to see something that is truly credible in, before they start to, to go back. So they have a long-term perspective on, on their status. Um, I think we need to have a long-term perspective as well and encourage those who need to make uh, appropriate decisions on how to handle the crisis to do so in a very well-informed way, understanding the dynamics both in the south and the north, and, and, and reaching out to try to find uh, solutions for that. Um, let, maybe I stop there. Uh, I, I think that crisis will stay with us for some time, will need to be managed uh, well in order to avoid a major humanitarian crisis and also risk undermining all of the efforts that I've mentioned in terms of the resilience by, by focusing uh, just on that. We, we have a real risk that we'll lose the opportunity that I think is there for building resilience across the Sahel, which will have not only a positive impact on food security and malnutrition, but also will go a certain distance to address some of the concerns of marginalization that fuel the issue in, in Mali itself. So I think it's important that we keep our eyes on, on both of these and respond appropriately. Thanks. Thank you. And I think we want to talk uh, in a little bit more depth about each of these three areas you've highlighted in terms of the current crisis, the chronic and structural issues, and then um, the situation in Mali. But I'm going to just take the privilege of the chair and focus on number two for a little bit, because I think that this conversation brings back an element of our, our food security discussion that began about five years ago, but has died down a little bit in terms of looking very starkly at the contrast between the amount of the, the, the dollars, the resources, and the efforts that go into emergency response when if you were able to apply some of that uh, same level of effort to long-term structural challenges to increasing productivity or managing water resources, you know, so, some of those some of those efforts could have much more staying power. And I, and I know that we've got a number of experts in the, in the group that will comment on this as well. But can you talk to me a little bit about the package that you just mentioned around resilience? Um, not just sort of the package of activities around resilience, but also what it takes to mobilize that kind of effort. It's very appealing. It's much easier to have people respond to a crisis. It's not so easy to have resources mobilized around a long-term challenge. So talk both about the, the sort of activities as well as some of the political challenges or arguments you might make for doing some of those activities. Okay, thank you. I think uh, in terms of the package itself, I think one of the, issues, one of the principles that we, would, uh, we were encouraging is, is making sure as, as we go forward with this that there's a real focus on, on households that are, are vulnerable 
uh, and that, that activities and interventions be organized around that. Uh, that doesn't mean there's not support going to institutions, but those institutions that are supported in, in this in this concept should be there to to support the resilience of these same uh, same households. Um, and so it's important to have targeted interventions, uh, correctly targeting the the households of concern, uh, as well as uh, support that is not uh, conceptual, theoretical, but actual uh, actually effective for those households. Um, in terms of uh, the larger issue um, of how to, to, to see this through, you're absolutely correct. A crisis generates a support that can be sustained for, for a period of time, but it quickly dissipates. And as I mentioned, with good rains, that's a good – already people are starting to talk about other things uh, uh, now that that particular crisis has gone away. Um, for, for, for myself – a uh, humanitarian response is usually required when there's either a political failure or a development failure. And, and I think we have to look at what, what causes that. Mali is actually a combination of those two. Uh, across the Sahel, the crisis is certainly one of, of a failure of development. Um, and so there needs to be a very good commitment by those who are putting serious resources uh, on the table to, to carry this through, not for one year, two years, but for five, ten years. Difficult thing to do. Uh, likewise, there need to be governments that are receptive to that. Uh, I think right now we have that combination in place. The question is how to sustain that engagement over a period of years. Uh, we all know that personalities, can, when they change, can, can have a change on such initiatives. And so this is why I referred to the Ajir Sahel initiative as, as, as potentially very important. If it can create a strong partnership today among the major, major actors, the national governments that I've mentioned, the regional institutions in, in, in the Sahel, but also the, the, major, the major donors in, in the EU, the World Bank, I think the African Development Bank, U.S. government, uh, and, and the U.N. system are, are probably key to that, uh, to, to agree on, on a long-term approach and, and, and start to commit longer-term money to that. And then a good coordination between them, I think, offers the opportunity to, to see this through uh, in the time frame that's required. So for, for me, it's the latter part that, that's still a question mark and, and one that I, well, I, th I see the opportunity. It's not yet seized and yet, not yet uh, materializing on the ground. And for me, 2013 is the time for that to happen. If it doesn't happen, I don't think it will happen. Can you follow on to this uh, by talking a little bit about maybe some of the good steps that have happened? You mentioned Niger is a, a country that's been quite serious and taken some steps. Can you talk a little bit about what that looks like and um, what some of the reasons for those efforts have been? Well, I think um, I, I think 2010 was was a, was an important year in in, in this, in that. Um, uh, uh, both the government and particularly the new government that has just re recently come to power uh, and uh, and the um, UN and humanitarians on the ground understood that they need to do business differently. And I think uh, now both the combination of, of a very positive government and, and I'd have to say a UN country team that in many ways is about the best I have seen on the ground, uh, very serious in terms of working together uh, to to solve these issues, um, very proactive uh, in in reaching out to different partners um, in a constructive, creative way has made the difference. 
so getting the right personality somehow is, is, is certainly a key part of that, and getting the right government, having the right government to work with uh, is also quite uh, quite important. So in some ways you have to be opportunistic and see where there are where these things are coming together and then channel the resources to that so that you can prove prove the case. Um, now getting into more of the specifics in terms of Niger, uh, I think uh, a good approach particularly on the nutrition side has really uh, has really uh, come forward both on moderate as well as severe malnutrition. Um, uh, is now quite quite effective, but also uh, some of the er- other areas uh, in terms of agricultural production, government's orientation to that, uh, the the support for social safety nets, uh, the work that's being done in that regard, uh, using in some cases cash vouchers, uh, some good experimentation there, is I think showing uh, good 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 uh, results. Uh, we have seen uh, in the recent Lancet. Uh, uh, um, uh, article on on Niger uh, very good reductions in under five mortality over a period of time through sustained support in, in these kinds of activities. So I think in many ways Niger shows a, a good way forward, uh, which can be replicated if it can be done in Niger. It can be done, I think, in any of the countries across the Sahel. So I think the key now is to, to seize on on that good initiative in Niger and deepen that. And understand that Niger, of course, is on the front line with Mali, and the security issues that affect Mali potentially could affect Niger as much as any country. And that is a government that's under extreme pressure uh, uh, to 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 uphold its own in, its own security while trying to do these uh, these very um, these very activities. They have actually had to divert resources for self-defense uh, to the expense of of supporting this. So it would be a shame to lose the good work that they're doing in Niger at this point in time due to the broader security issues. Um, This is why I do think that uh, Mali is probably the kind of security issues we see in Mali are are the biggest threat to our resilience uh, approach uh, because they will divert resources that that could be better used to support these types of activities. So this is, I think in many ways, Niger is a model uh, not only in terms of the interventions but the proactiveness of the government uh, the good humanitarian collaboration that's on the ground, and a good understanding of how to link that with the development side uh, actually exists there. And to the degree that we can replicate that in other countries, uh, I think we can see uh, a good success. Great. Well, let, let's um, thank you for that, and let's shift a little bit to the current crisis. Um, I wanted to ask because I am always interested in process, if you could talk a little bit about the coordinating process, what's actually happening. Uh, who's doing what? So just talk the audience through how things are actually working on the ground. When I was asked to take up this uh, position, because uh, it is an unusual position to have a regional humanitarian coordinator. Normally you have a humanitarian coordinator uh, country by country, but there was a, a belief that there were some commonalities to the, the food and nutrition crisis uh, that, that required um, that required a, a coherent uh, uh, response. Um, and it was compounded, I think, because of the nine countries I described, only two had humanitarian teams of any of any real nature on the ground. So one of the first challenges was really to build up humanitarian teams across the region, not only in Niger and Chad, which had been dealing with this historically, but also doing the same uh, in the other seven in the other seven countries. Secondly, uh, there was a need to 
to mobilize the, the resources for this. I mentioned the $1.6 billion, so that was also a, a part of this. Uh, thirdly, was to build an accountability framework, a common framework, uh, because we don't always have the level of rigor that's required, I believe, in terms of our own assessments, uh, our own uh, um, projection of, of numbers affected, also for monitoring of performance uh, and, and outcomes. So we tried to build that in across, uh, across uh, the Sahel. Um, access was another issue, particularly in the north of Mali, but also in other areas such as in uh, northern Nigeria where, where there are problems of um, uh, terrorist activity. Uh, and, f and the fifth was to how to, to incorporate the resilience piece into this. So that was the sort of the broad regional process that was put in place. At the country level, uh, going back to that, the, the key piece is to get uh, the humanitarian teams up and running, followed by getting uh, appropriate uh, technical support in, gearing up uh, uh, the, um, the, the various organizations. Let's take Mali as an example which was very development-oriented up until this crisis. Uh, it was necessary really to change, in some cases, leadership, in some cases, uh, certainly in all cases, to bring in humanitarian staff uh, uh, to, to do this, and not just on the UN, but on the NGO side. Even the donors were very development-oriented as opposed to humanitarian. So there's a real challenge in, in, in changing that mindset. And a lot of resources had to be brought in to help walk people through that and reorient how to, how to do business, so, so to speak. Um, I think a lot of that has been accomplished. So now we're in a position to look forward to 2013. And what we're doing, just to answer your process question, what we will do is develop a humanitarian plan for 2013 uh, that learns from all of this. I've mentioned the three areas that we'll focus on, rebuilding, uh, uh, dealing with the chronic situation, dealing with Mali. Uh, but in that, we're now putting together the final planning guidelines for this. We will use a regional contingency planning out of uh, Mali to take a look at the likely scenarios for uh, uh, displacement in particular out of Mali, uh, both a likely case as well as uh, worst case scenarios for planning. Secondly, we want to use more standardized approaches and methodologies for assessments to project the number of vulnerable households, either for food insecurity or, or malnutrition. Um, we will build in a standardized approach to performance monitoring and to outcome monitoring for 2013. Also looking for improvements in the financial tracking system that tracks the kind of contributions that come in. It is, we're seeing that there are major holes in that right now and that need to be improved. Um, and, and that's important because that's what guides donors in terms of their allocation of resources. Uh, if that data is not correct, then a misallocation of resources could happen. So we want to, to build all of this in the accountability, I believe, is important because that accountability, if we can prove, the, first of all, that we have credible numbers in terms of who's affected, and secondly, that we have programs that are actually addressing it, that's often a prerequisite to attract additional funding to complete the, the process. So we need to be, to be um, uh, credible in that response. And, we, and particularly as we move away from acute crisis to a chronic crisis uh, where funding is more difficult to attract, that kind of credibility will be required if we're going to be successful in raising the resources required. So that's the kind of framework we'll put in place uh, for 2013, looking at uh, the, three, the three areas that I, that I mentioned.
Great, and I think I know we'll come to some questions on Mali with the with the audience. So maybe we can turn to those now. I should note the U.S. has put in about 350 million. Is that right? Okay. Um, let me turn to the audience. I know I don't know if we've got our friends from WFP or AID who want to make any comments uh, up front, or if you want me to go more broadly. Anything? Could, could I get you to just talk into a microphone? Okay. okay. I'm Greg Gottlieb from USAID. Uh, I think, you know, what David's laid out is what many donors are now trying to do, both in the Horn and the Sahel, which is to really make that big effort, that big push to combine uh, relief with development in the sense of geographically locating it and programmatically locating it. You'd think we would have done that a while back, but but um, but I think now is a real good opportunity. The Europeans are very keen through Azir. Both David and I have served uh, on their advisory board, and we're trying to do it in the Horn with uh, uh, this global alliance. So, as those you know, the processes for both places are a little bit different. But what's gratifying to hear is that you know we're looking at sets of common indicators, um, and and to approach it in the same in a similar way. I do think that uh, it's interesting what David said because we were, you talked about as the, as the countryside greens up, uh, you know, donors' uh, interest begins to wane because you come out and take a look and go, oh, it's all green. Uh, similarly in the Horn right now, we just were talking to some of our folks out there and they said even there you can begin to see now uh, a loss of interest. So I think it really behooves us to uh, continue these a lot of these group these groups that we've started the Global Alliance in Azir, and really continue to keep uh, energy behind them because if we don't in another two years we really won't be closer to where we want to be so I'll leave it to them well, I that thank you for making that comment because it, it's really shocking when you look at the amount of resources that, that do go to emergency assistance and the fact that if you could shift them or change that process you might have better stronger markets, stronger production um, that would be more successful overall. Um, let me open up to a couple of, we'll maybe take a couple questions at a time and uh, then come back to you for comments. So who has, we have a hand in the back, please introduce yourself and um, state your question. Hi, I'm Sujay Menon uh, with the Office of the Undersecretary of Democracy, Civilian Security and Human Rights. Um, I wanted to ask about kind of uh, the specifics about the situation that's going on between northern Mali and the rest of Mali, as well as the Embera uh, refugee camp in Mauritania. If you can tell us about the situation there, that would be great. Yeah, it's a very big one. Um, maybe you could be more precise about what you want to, to know about uh, both of those aspects. Sorry, uh, you know, just... Um, kind of the, the, the changing situation in northern Mali. Like, I, I know it was originally kind of Tureg, a Tureg issue, and then it has changed into some, maybe some other players, so kind of who those other players are. Sure. And with Mbera, just, uh, you know, the situation in the camp when it comes to humanitarian assistance in the camp, and, and maybe if there's any ethnic issues that are going on. Or. Okay, well, um, you know, I think uh, what I would say, I could talk a long time about this, but I won't, um, on northern Mali and the, and the dynamics. I think if you if you go back and look at how it evolved uh, starting in January of this year, 
uh, initially the, the dominant group was the MNLA, which seemed to have sufficient men and material to, to, to make a major push, particularly after the coup, uh, to, to, be, to be perceived at least as the more dominant piece, uh, a group on the ground. Uh, and I mentioned they had uh, seemingly the, the men and the material to do it. Uh, what they lacked was a third M, which was money, uh, and I think that that's an important piece to understand about the dynamics of the north of Mali, is that the amount of that money makes a difference, and and in the end they have been uh, marginalized and largely pushed out of uh, Mali itself. Um, and what we've seen instead are is Ansar Din and uh, Mujao who've uh, come in to dominate, and particularly Mujao has made a very dramatic, I think, increase in its its. Uh, its size and an area of control over, over this period of time since the beginning of the year. Um, and I think this is a good point, point to bring in the issue of organized crime and the amount of money that comes in through that. The UNODC estimated uh, about $900 million a year in profits, I think it is, in the region from drug trafficking. That's a lot of money in, in comparison to resources that state authorities have uh, and can be very corrosive uh, in, in, in its use. Um, and secondly, of course, hostage-taking, which also comes out of uh, – a lot of this is all, all, all centered around the area of Gao, where Mujao is based, and there are strong links to, to, to Mujao for that. Uh, and hostage-taking itself has had significant uh, resources, brought significant resources in, and other resources seem to be coming in. Um, and then, of course, the, the alliance between Acme and, and Sardine uh, has brought uh, life to, 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 to that movement uh, in terms of financing. Uh, so money counts, and money counts in a big way in the north. Uh, money can be used uh, for recruitment, which seems to be going on. Uh, I'll link it slightly to the refugee situation just for a moment. I think uh, while I, I mentioned that the, the food and nutrition piece was well-funded, uh, reasonably well-funded um, and, and reasonably on time, the refugee uh, component is not, and it continues to be massively underfunded. Uh, putting pressure not only on UNHCR, but even the World Food Program uh, has some uh, constraints on this. One of the biggest losers in all of this is the area of education. Right now, UNHCR is only able to provide life-saving kinds of support. Uh, one of the things to go is, is education, uh, which you can get away with for a short amount of time, but we're approaching the point where that's no longer acceptable. Uh, already, these children have lost one year of schooling, uh, and they're about to lose their second year. Uh, so if you have active recruitment and, and groups with money, uh, these are very good targets uh, as well. So you, you have a double blow, not only losing uh, the opportunity for, uh, for, for education for, for children, but also uh, making the temptation to join uh, these groups that much greater. So this is an important gap that exists right now in, in all of the camps uh, that I really believe should be addressed as quickly as possible. But frankly, I don't see the resources uh, being made available at this time to, in order to confront that. So money makes a difference, and I think that's key to understanding the dynamics in the north of Mali. Uh, often it's talked of in terms of terrorism and in terms of uh, uh, Islamic uh, uh, fundamentalism and so forth, but the organized crime piece, I think, is, is really a very big piece of this. Um, and sometimes you can better understand some of the actions on the ground when you understand the, the criminal uh, aspects of that and the, and the competition for um, movement of, of drugs and other goods uh, uh, across uh, the Sahara. So uh, uh, because many times what we see on the surface is a reflection of, of, of that kind of uh, business. Um, 
So, uh, uh, but nonetheless, what it does show is a, somewhat of a consolidation in the north, and, and I think some worrisome trends. Uh, Mujiao has moved, as you know, f out of the north into the, uh, one of the southern regions, the region, excuse me, of, of Mopti, um, and into the major town of Duanza, <coughs> which was abandoned by the MNLA. Um, uh, without making a comment, uh, it was, it was uh, vacated for several weeks. Uh, no one uh, moved in until Mujiao moved in uh, after weeks after the MNLA left. Uh, so that kind of vacuum, I think, is being filled by, by these groups, and they will be opportunistic in, in taking advantage of that in the future. So where do we go from, from here? You, you mentioned the south of Mali. The only thing I'll say on that, I think, is um, uh, my interest is the humanitarian side, but my interest on the humanitarian side is that an appropriate political solution is found to minimize humanitarian impact. And, all, and, and so without getting into the, the political aspect of what should be done, that's really not for me to say, it's simply to say that a good understanding of the actual dynamics, political dynamics in the South, the various, uh, uh, in the aftermath of a coup d'etat, it's not always so simple how, how the pieces come together. A good understanding of how that works uh, uh, and how to build the appropriate consensus for any kind of political or military intervention needs to be done. The good groundwork needs to be done. Likewise, a clear understanding of the real dynamics in the North uh, before taking on any intervention. I know there's still a good uh, window of opportunity for dialogue with the various communities of the North. Um, the Tuareg are actually a minority even in the North, and the North represents 11% of the population. Um, but there is, uh, uh, so it cannot be seen as a purely Tuareg issue. Uh, but nonetheless, issues of, 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 of whether it's autonomy or other political solutions uh, need to be, to be identified and found uh, so that you can pull those communities uh, away from the groups that I've just mentioned and try to find, there is an opportunity for a dialogue, I think, with those groups. Uh, there, there is a good attitude towards that, and that, uh, that I think, should be seized. Um, so in, in short, a very well-informed uh, approach to, to finding a political solution is what we would really like to see to avoid a larger humanitarian problem. Uh, doing nothing, I think, will have significant humanitarian consequences. Doing something badly could have even more humanitarian consequences. Um, uh, I really can't say more than that. The, the last thing I'll say on the humanitarian side with Mali is we cannot forget that 80% of the humanitarian needs in Mali are actually in the south, uh, not in the north. Uh, that's because the bulk of the population is in the south, and they all face the same food uh, insecurity and malnutrition problems. So we cannot uh, just focus on, on access to the north, though that's an important problem, uh, but we also have to maintain appropriate humanitarian action on the ground throughout uh, the, the country. We should do it because it's, it's what we're supposed to do. Not to do it also has a political impact in the sense that it creates this perception that we're all only interested in the in the north, so we need to be, we need to do it for humanitarian reasons, and we need to do it for for the uh, for what I just mentioned as well. Um, maybe I stop there on that. Yeah. Great, that's very helpful. Thank you. Uh, we have a question in the back. Let's have you speak into a microphone. Hi, Will Davis with UNDP. Just on the access issues in the north, is it general insecurity, or are you seeing active opposition to international humanitarian involvement, like you were seeing from Al Shabaab in Somalia? Uh, yeah, that's a very interesting question uh, um, because a lot of what goes on in northern Mali in terms of humanitarian access is counterintuitive. Um, 
there isn't a lot of insecurity right now. It doesn't mean there isn't an occasional issue, uh, particularly with the departure of the MNLA after they were forced out. They were the primary driver of looting and, and, and other kinds of problems. Uh, the, the armed groups that are there now seemingly more disciplined and, and less uh, inclined to that. Um, the, um, and secondly, uh, seemingly willing to allow humanitarian assistance to flow without going through them. There was an initial attempt to try to, to have the distribution go through these groups, but some pushback. And I give credit to the NGOs on the ground that were doing this. That was that they were able to create that kind of space, and and I, I think that's that's very good. So the current situation is that um, uh, provided that you're using predominantly Malian nationals to deliver assistance, international NGOs and national NGOs are able to continue to operate on the ground. Uh, the internationals that are there tend to be from the subregion, uh, and you know, very much uh, uh, seen as a part of. Uh, are not seen as a potential problem by, by those in control of different parts of the North. Um, and nor is there seemingly any interference with the distribution of that assistance. And I'll describe the level of assistance in a second. Um, I have talked to any number of, of refugees and IDPs and uh, former government officials who worked in the North, former UN national staff who worked in the North, who all maintain contact uh, with families, colleagues on the ground, and uh, the telephones still work reasonably well. Uh, and they all tell me the same thing. The assistance is getting through without major diversion. And when I explore further as to why that would be, because that is counterintuitive, it goes back to my point that I made earlier. They're well financed. They don't need it. Uh, secondly, the markets are reasonably well supplied in the north. Uh, I've been advised that prices in Kidal, for example, for diesel, is uh, less than in Bamako, and the same for things uh, such as uh, flour and milk and things of that nature. The reason for that is that goods are flowing in from primarily from Algeria, from the north, uh, and the north of Mali is a tax-free zone at this point in time. Nobody's collecting import uh, taxes. Uh, so um, so uh, the markets actually have goods available. The problem for the average person, however, is that the economy has collapsed and they don't have the financial means to buy it. Why, which is why uh, uh, humanitarian assistance is still required. And it, it gives an insights on how we might want to approach it through cash vouchers and so forth to utilize what's going on. Um, so for the moment, that's kind of how it's working. WFP is, um, uh, last I, I saw, was putting food in for about 170,000 people a month. Uh, just to give an order of magnitude, the Red Cross, International Red Cross, is working to do something similar and perhaps go to a higher level. Uh, I know UNICEF is putting in a good amount. I think they put in over 200 tons, I think is what they told me, of medical supplies into the north. In terms of medical supplies, that's quite a bit. Uh, the hospitals are, are functioning. The Red Cross has been providing fuel to keep the hospitals running. I talked to a refugee in Algeria whose brother was in the hospital in Timbuktu when I spoke to him. He said, well, I just talked to him yesterday. Uh, he says it's working fine. Uh, uh, so at that level, it's working. But I have two major concerns going forward. Number one, we don't really have a clear assessment of the actual humanitarian needs. We have anecdotal information, and so we, we hear from this NGO or that NGO about what's going on. We need a more global assessment to get a clearer picture of what the actual requirements are, and it's important if we're having a reasonably good uh, uh, rainy season uh, and harvest that that will have an impact on the humanitarian requirements. Um, 
So we're, I've asked the, the team there to organize that, so that should be underway in the month of October. We'll have to use Malian uh, um, organizations to carry that out, most likely, but uh, that's, that's underway. Uh, secondly, uh, the fact that we have a reasonably comfortable position right now with the distribution of, of assistance is nothing that we should expect to last forever. Any pressure that's put on, particularly if, if the financial aspect is somehow being constrained, will change the very dynamic that I described earlier. Secondly, um, um, a military intervention could change things on the ground very quickly in terms of who's allowed to operate and how. Right now, the WFP symbol or the UNICEF symbol seems not to be a problem in the circulation of assistance on the ground. So that doesn't provoke anything. It's important that we stay low-key on this and not make it into a big deal and just get the job done so as not to provoke uh, a response that, uh, uh, that is there primarily because we might be challenging who's in charge, so to speak. So I think uh, as long as we're low-key in the current status, we can continue. But events could change, and we need to have a, a much more robust risk management system and remote monitoring system for this assistance so that we can better track and not just use anecdotal information on how things are going. So we are drawing off of the experience in Somalia. I've brought uh, people in from Somalia who are working on these, who have worked on these same issues and managed this, and we want to replicate the same kind of systems that have been there and adapt them for the Malian context. Uh, so we, we need to do that in, in, in by the end of this year as well. So I think if we can get a better assessment and get a better risk monitoring in place and be sensitive to the potential for changes due to political or security changes on the ground, we can continue to see access into the area uh, and perhaps continue to see an expansion of that uh, over, over time. Uh, so maybe I'll stop there. Thanks. Okay, uh, let's take the next two questions, hand in the back and then right in the near back. Hi, Helene Kessler from the State Department, from the yes. Secretary's Policy Planning Staff. Um, I'm concerned about the lines of communication um, between the humanitarian community and those who are considering the um, political uh, next steps. Um, and can you comment on how you're working with the UN political side and ECOWAS and the African Union and uh, what kinds of communication um, we have there to ensure that, uh, you know, that the humanitarian situation is taken into account as we consider political next steps and security next steps? Okay, let's take that. Thanks. Uh, Hi, David. Omar Dyer from the British Embassy. Nice to you. Um, actually, my question is very similar to the last one, so that might make it easier. Um, we've seen quite a spike in sort of international attention on Mali recently. My own government has appointed a special envoy. Others have done so similarly. But it also feels a little bit like we lack the kind of structures to bring that international attention together, the kind of structures we've seen on Somalia or, or the Sudans, for example. Do you think that the last week's UNGA meeting <coughs> and perhaps the UN integrated strategy could help bring some of those things or are there more that we could do? Communications and uh, on, on the communication question, I think, well, first of all, uh, as you know, there's a special representative for the Secretary General based in Dakar uh, who oversees many of the countries, including Mali uh, in, the, in the Sahel. My office is uh, located uh, in the building next to his, so uh, that, that certainly facilitates that communication. 
and we've been certainly encouraged uh, the, that kind of exchange. Um, uh, we're not drawing a sharp line. We very much believe that we need to know and uh, understand what's happening on the political front because that helps guide us, and vice versa. Uh, uh, our uh, you know, our concerns and information can make sh can help guide an appropriate kind of political or, or security kind of intervention. So we're very much uh, in favor of that, and I have had not only good uh, working relationship here, there in Dakar, but also in, in New York, and 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 I think the, the feeling is mutual. Uh, and so I think at that level it works. It works fine. Um, secondly, the with ECOWAS, uh, I've had. It's a little more difficult because the headquarters, of course, is in Abuja, but I've had the opportunity to meet with the president of ECOWAS on this issue and maintain a good working relationship with their humanitarian commission. Uh, we actually invited uh, one of their senior people in the commission to Dakar to meet with humanitarians at the regional level to talk about how ECOWAS and, and will be working um, uh, both on the humanitarian, how the, their humanitarian piece might fit in to a military uh, operation, which I think was very helpful to to the ECOWAS team that, that came because it, it changed their, their thinking a bit on how to do that. But we do maintain the contact, and we're, uh, OCHA will be placing a more senior person into Abuja. Uh, for the first time, we'll have an international working in Abuja, primarily to work with the country team, but who will also be in a position to work, of course, with, with ECOWAS, and I think that will be very, very helpful that we maintain and, and, and increase those lines of uh, communication. We have staff that actually in OCHA work, uh, their national staff in this case, that work uh, in ECOWAS. Uh, so uh, we will continue to work to strengthen those, those lines. On the broader issue of the, uh, uh, nobody mentioned the word special envoy yet, I think, but anyway, uh, or, or the integrated strategy, a couple things to say. The, there, there often are concerns by humanitarians about the integrated strategy, so I'd like just to, to, to deal with that. Um, what, what I remind everyone is that we're talking about an integrated strategy, which is where we are, are working collaborative on what that strategy will look like and uh, basically reinforcing the very communication lines that were, that were brought up. So for me, that's a very healthy approach and one that I, I've supported actually from the, from the beginning. Um, but we're not talking about integrated operations. Uh, there will be it will be a separate line of authority and supervision that will not fall under does not fall under the SRSG, nor is it intended to fall under the special envoy. So I think we have found I think the optimum in terms of independence and and communication uh, and how to move forward uh, in, in the case of Mali or more broadly across the Sahel. Uh, in terms of uh, is this enough? I think the key. The key uh, will be, uh, I think you put your finger on it, there needs to be uh, a good leadership to pull the pieces together that I described earlier so that we can, we can find a way to, to move forward. Uh, so I think the, you know, the appointment of a special envoy as announced by the Secretary General is an opportunity for that. Uh, the integrated strategy, which should be done on a consultative basis within the region, I think is also an opportunity to do that, and uh, uh, hopefully that will that will be uh, that will that will be enough to do what we what we need to see on the ground. Daniela Moro, Johns Hopkins University. Uh, two questions. A few months ago came out uh, news on the France 24 hour that the Algerian government 
had the meeting, a secret meeting, with the Mali government and with Ansar Din in Algiers. And the question is how this could affect what you are doing in the region, because apparently they are looking for some kind of compromise. The second news regards the kids that the Islamists are getting inside their army for apparently, according to AP today, 30 US dollars per day to fight with them. Two questions. I'm going to add the uh, woman with a scarf in the back to those questions. Um, I'm um, concerned a little bit about the... Um, yeah. My name is Fatima Taki. I'm from the National Guard Bureau International Affairs. Um, I'm concerned a little bit about the you know, aid to Africa. It's been um, out in the news that you know, the African countries have been destroyed because of the aid that's been given to them. And they have, you know, stopped to learn how to rely on themselves and how to take care of their own problems. And uh, I wanted to know what are the long-term strategic objectives of the UN, you know, um, in terms of teaching those countries how to build their own capacities and, um, you know, take care of their own problems instead of having all like all the international community getting involved all the time and we have seen that you know um, on uh, on and on and again like in different countries in Africa where they we help them and then like few months later or a few years later the crisis is still there and it just keeps coming up in different forms and uh, uh, for instance the Mali problem has been there since 1961 and it's a social cultural and political grievance that keeps transforming into human, humanitarian problems. Okay, let's, let's um, take that question, but also there's a woman right next to you. Let's add that question as well. Hi, I'm Mary Francis from the U.S. Department of Labor's Office of Child Labor, Forced Labor, and Human Trafficking. And I just wanted to tack on to the question from Johns Hopkins on the issue of child soldiers. Uh, I have heard also that children are paid to fight. I also wanted to hear if you have any information on other um, push-pull factors for child soldiering, ideological, forced abduction, anything of that sort. Thank you. Okay, uh, on, on the first part of your question, it's a bit political uh, and probably outside my competence to, to answer, so I will just simply reiterate what I said before. I think, there, there, as I said earlier, there is a, I, I certainly picked up a political, uh, there's certainly a, a will for a dialogue with uh, with the with the different communities on the ground, whether the, the Arab, uh, Tuareg, uh, Pul, uh, Songhai, etc., to find to find solutions, the only thing I hear, and I'm just repeating what I hear, is that there's no desire to deal with either the drug traffickers or or those who are involved uh, in, in terrorist activities. Beyond that, dialogue is very much desired, and and they want to find a way forward with that. Um, on the, on the second part, on the children, um, uh, as I said earlier, there certainly are a number of reports of recruitment going on. Uh, uh, $30 a day, yeah, that's, that may be about right. I, that's a bit higher than what I've heard, but um, let me just simply go back to my earlier point. A lot of money is available, and uh, money is being used uh, for recruitment. Uh, that's that's what we're hearing. So uh, uh, this is why I keep saying money counts in this environment, and the organized crime aspect of this, the hostage taking, is actually a major driver of what's going on here. And that's I think the major point that we need to take away. 
Um, and, and to answer your question, I think it really is the money that's the most important factor that's driving this at this point in time. Probably some, uh, maybe there may be cultural issues as well. Um, as you know, there's a certain amount of social stratification among some of the communities there, and this is also an opportunity when you have money to overturn that uh, that kind of uh, social structure, and and those who who are in a position for a change to be in a position of authority uh, enjoy that and and want to see that uh, maintained, and that dynamic will will probably build over time as well. Um, in terms of the issue of the aid. Um, uh, I, I, I really think this time, and I'll start with Niger, uh, this is a government that wants to do the right thing. Uh, they're under extreme pressure because of the Mali crisis, but they still want to do the right thing. They have the right attitude, the right plans and thinking. It's their plans. And, and I think it's important uh, that we, we, we acknowledge that it's their plans. We can provide technical support to that and want to do that. Uh, but when it's their plans, it makes a big difference in terms of the prospect of, of success. And I think increasingly across the, the region, we see governments that are acting more responsible in this regard, that, no, we can't continue with business as usual. Uh, we actually are accountable for finding a way forward. Um, I was in Burkina Faso uh, with a in a meeting with the Minister of Agriculture, who talked about how they were trying to figure out how to move ahead. And I thought he was very creative. He, he sat down and basically called all the former ministers of agriculture over the, that were, you know, they're still, that were still alive, I guess you'd say, over, over the history of, um, of the country, and asked them to, to go around uh, the country and then come back and recommend a set of interventions that they thought would make sense. Uh, to, particularly on the agriculture product, production and, and uh, water management side. So they came back with three or four key items that they're now working on. So I think it's in, what we're seeing is that commitment and that will. In, in, in many of the countries, however, the, the administrative structures to support that are lacking, and that's, that's a key impediment at this point in time. If you go to Niger or Chad in particular, that's, that's very much the case. So continued support uh, with that will to help them with the means, I think, is, is, is still there. And, and uh, going back to the earlier points that several have made, this political in commitment for a long-term assistance for resilience is important so as, so as to help realize the, the ambitions of governments that we see today. It's a very good opportunity, one that may not be repeated uh, very quickly if we don't take advantage of it. Thanks. Can I ask, I feel like we always get caught up in the sort of new words or topics of the day. Can you tell us how you define resilience, what you mean when you say resilience? Well, it's a, it's a magic word. If you say it often enough, magically <laughs> everything changes. <laughs> but, uh, um, uh, but more practically, uh, in terms of, uh, of giving a, a definition, the idea is, is to build up the the capability, the capacity of households to absorb the shock of a, of a drought or a spike in commodity prices so they don't have to do short-term things for survival that have a, a negative long-term impact on their prospects for Such as selling cattle, taking kids out of school, uh, getting food that's less nutritious, which results in uh, poorly developed uh, you know, stunting or, or, or in case of severe malnutrition, death. Uh, there's a whole range of things that, that need to be done that, that, that people, there's a range of things that people do in these circumstances that they have to do to survive, 
but it impacts on, on their own personal livelihood, their ability to, to restock or whatever is, a, is an issue, the support for their children, the, the fact that children don't get an education or that they, they, they suffer from, as I mentioned, stunting and so forth. So these are what we're trying to go after uh, so that those households in the future can get through this crisis with a minimum of disruption and they can continue to thrive and their children can continue to, to, um, to, to uh, have opportunities to, to prosper in, in the future. That's what we're trying to get at. It's a pretty complex notion, I think, so it's always good to try to talk about it a little more in depth. Um, do we have another round of questions uh, right here in front and then in the turquoise sweater and then in the back? Hello. Uh, my name is Dean Bland. I'm with the uh, Human Geography uh, Joint Program Office at the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. Um, my question goes to uh, what you spoke about uh, regarding building an accountability framework. Um, could you uh, speak a bit about uh, uh, your your data gathering, uh, where you get your data, how reliable it is, your confidence level, um, what you may do to change that if, if any of those are not good? And if you have time, uh, the, on the flip side, you spoke about measures of uh, performance. Uh, if you could elaborate about uh, how you might work on gathering those measures of perform performance. Hi, my name is Lauren Kunis from the National Democratic Institute, NDI. Um, I think one of the things that's been most worrisome to those of us watching the political developments unfold um, is kind of the lack of clear power structure in Bamako. You have um, the transition president who has kind of the constitutionally vested power, then there's the prime minister who's rumored to be allied to a certain extent with the coup, and then you have Captain Sinogo who led the coup who, even though he kind of officially returned, officially ceded power in April, is still very much involved in decision making. He's publicly addressing Malians. Um, I'm wondering if you could discuss a little bit to what extent you feel this sort of power vacuum or power uncertainty has affected our ability as the international community to, um, to deal with humanitarian aid to effectively channel and target the people who need assistance the most. Hi, uh, Stephen Long from USAID. Uh, one, one of the main focuses of the region has been the rains and the drought. But I was wondering to what extent uh, pests, not locusts, but like Maruca or other uh, viruses, flies, wasps, whatever, uh, are affecting the, the overall security of the region. Um. Let's see the first one. Oh, the accountability question. Yeah. Um, th this is something I believe strongly in. I'm not uh, uh, a statistician, so I'm not going to, to go into a lot of detail at, at that level. But uh, I know, I, 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 well, I don't know if I know good data when I see it, but I know bogus data when I see it. And, um, and, and I think uh, there's a need for a greater rigor in, 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 in what we do as a humanitarian community. Um, I was, um, uh, it's no secret that the, uh, if, you, if you look at the projections of the numbers affected by food insecurity for the, for the region, for the Sahel, that there was a, a lot of changes over, over time. Um, I, I have a problem with that because um, 
unless something fundamental changes, those projections probably should not uh, should not change. Um, so uh, I did ask that we do a review of how we got those numbers and. Uh, and what I can tell you, and this gets to the two points that you mentioned on data gathering and confidence level, after I found out where we gathered the data, my confidence level was not so high, I have to say. And, and I've asked, uh, because it was put from, pulled from random, not random, but various reports, but not necessarily consistently, uh, with a consistent methodology across all of the countries. So, and, and actually, uh, there was some people were talking at uh, populations at risk or versus population affected, and not a real agreement on what either of those terms meant either. So I have asked the, our food security working group at the regional level to work on, on a better methodology for this so that we can have something consistent in terms of a methodology and projections, understanding that uh, there's also uh, national level uh, interpretations of this as well, but that we need to have uh, at least an internal understanding of what's happening, uh, and, and that's, that's currently underway. Um, in terms of measuring performance, I'm, we're not really looking for anything that's uh, terribly difficult. Um, uh, just getting some basic data. If we're treating severe acute malnutrition, I would like to know how many children have been treated. Uh, and, and, of course, that data, where it comes from, varies from country to country, but at least there should be a system in each country to, to collect that. Um, and and uh, by asking the question, we have seen that collection uh, methods have, have improved, both in terms of frequency and, I hope, in terms of accuracy. Um, uh, and and um, it, it's it's useful because it gives us a guide that tells us whether we're achieving what we want to achieve in, in, in certain areas. Uh, these are things we should have been doing 25, 35, 45 years ago, but uh, really have not been systematically built in, and this is, the I think, the, the key. Uh, we're not so good yet on monitoring outcomes, which is really what we wanted to see, uh, and I've asked that we, we, we do a better job of that for next year. Um, we're on, the, on the performance type of things that I just mentioned, like on malnutrition, we're okay, I think, on the food security, nutrition, and agriculture side. Other sectors seemingly weak in terms of ability to collect that information. So we continue to work with those humanitarian clusters that are responsible for that to remind of them of their accountability and to work with them to try to find ways to source information that gives us that level of information. Um, we could go much further than that. I know at OCHA in headquarters, I had some good meetings there just before coming here. They're interested in becoming much more uh, systematic uh, in, in, in the collection of this kind of information. We had a very good discussion on that. Uh, both in terms of the technology used for that as well as the, the methodology. So I think there is an opportunity once again to reinforce this, and I firmly believe if we can do a better job on this, we will be in a better position to uh, more accurately guide where assistance goes to those donors who are, who are looking for that kind of information, plus continue to attract the kind of funding required to respond to the real needs on the ground. And so that was just one of three questions. Yep. So. Um, uh, the second question, the, the lack of a clear power structure in Mali. I think that what I will simply say, there, there's two points to this. Uh, number one, that points to out what I was referring to earlier, that there's a real need to understand what really is going on uh, in Mali, whether it's north or south, before 
making decisions on what to do. Uh, if, if there is this kind of a lack of a clear power structure, well, then you need to deal with it uh, and, and understand it and understand the relative interests and motivations and so forth. In terms of the second part of your question, in terms of channeling humanitarian assistance, actually it's not been a problem. Uh, the government itself has been very supportive. The Prime Minister uh, uh, and his Minister for Humanitarian Affairs has been very supportive to the humanitarian community. Uh, and to ourselves, uh, so we've not received any uh, any resistance. I think they lack a, a bit of the capacity. It's a new ministry, uh, so they lack capacity to, to effectively um, carry out a lot of actions. But uh, but otherwise, uh, uh, it's not been a particular problem, and that we've worked very closely with them. Uh, on the third question, I actually I can't answer that question. That's a bit more detail. I don't know if anybody from the World Food Program or otherwise would want to answer that kind of... Uh, On pests and not just locusts, but uh, other no, pests. I know that the... Um, okay, I think uh, I told David that we usually have a pretty sophisticated audience. I think I underspoke this time. Um, we really appreciate all of you coming because this makes for a very interesting and deep conversation. David, we're so happy to have you here and listen. And I want to just um, ask you maybe to close with a couple of thoughts on something that we've been spending a fair amount of time on. Ambassador Bill Garvelink is with us here at CSIS, and he wrote a piece um, a few months ago called misunderstood getting the right response to food shortages in the Sahel it's on our website but one of the one of the statements he makes and it was I think a little controversial when he put this out was that food aid should be minimized and you, we should realize that it plays only a palliative role that could disrupt markets and so this is sort of the macro theme we've been talking about today I wanted to ask David if you could just comment briefly on something that we've thought a lot about in terms of how do you shift people's thinking about the continent of Africa, that it's not a place of disease, despair, poverty, that we have to start thinking about it in very different ways, in long-term, market-oriented ways. Um, tell us just some of your own thoughts about what, what kinds of thinking you've put into that approach, because I think you've spent quite a bit of time thinking about it. Well, I think... Uh, uh, it's extremely important. Maybe, maybe to start with, um, if, we, if we kind of look at the evolution over time I'll, I'll, uh, of how this has been dealt with, the original approach was simply to ship food in, and then there was an understanding that it wasn't just availability of food, it was access to food, and, and the importance of, of the means to, 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 to purchase food is important. Then there was the understanding that nutrition was a critical point uh, in this, and that malnutrition was not always linked to food insecurity per se, so we're seeing, a, I think, a positive evolution in the thinking as we go, as we go along. So I think that's that's important to recognize. Uh, and then I think the understanding, the more, the stronger understanding of markets and and the role that safety nets and cash vouchers can play in this is now getting much more play. Um, though, if you really wanted to do it on a serious level, uh, the amount of resources required would be actually quite significant. So I think we need to understand the magnitude of what we're talking about when we when we do this and where the, the funding for that will come from. But anything that's market-oriented, I personally believe, would be more, more productive in the, in the long term and, and working with the, um, with the, within the broader region uh, in terms of uh, 
leveling out production um, shortfalls in different areas would also be be handy. And um, uh, uh, I think uh, the more we move in that direction, and particularly if it's reinforced with the kinds of resilience-related activities we've talked about, uh, would be would be very very beneficial, and we could avoid this 1.6 billion dollar uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, of um, response. I think it's also important to think about the growing population in this region, um, in the nine countries, including the two northern regions of Nigeria and Cameroon. There's about 115 million people today in that Sahelian band. Um, that population is doubling about every 20 to 25 years. So we could soon, in, in, in within a generation, see a quarter of a billion people in, in the Sahel. And I think that's a sobering thought, um, that, that there has to be a transformation between now and then in livelihoods and, and production and, and beyond just agriculture for this to work. Uh, so the market-based approach is probably the best way to, to see that happen. Well, thank you for joining us today. Thanks to all of you for coming. We appreciate it.